listener production. If you have a child who's neurodiverse, how do you handle their more challenging behaviours? Some of the common challenges that we might work with, which may resonate with people, include things like physical aggression, verbal aggression, meltdowns or outburst behaviour, self-stimulatory behaviour, all the way down to things like non-cooperation. Today on Feed, Play, Love, a positive approach for parents to use when things get tough. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. As we're aware, parenting comes with some challenges. For parents of neurodiverse children, those challenges can be unique. And developing strategies that work for everyone in the family can be a long and difficult process. This is where positive behaviour support comes in. As the name suggests, the approach isn't about punishments or consequences for challenging behaviours, but instead looks to encourage children to behave in new ways. Erica Gleeson is a behavioural specialist and all abilities consultant with a passion for positive behaviour support. Now, listen, let's start off by talking about language because in this space, language is very important. I know you're not too fond of the term challenging behaviour. How would you term it and why is it important to use that kind of language? Oh, look, the the industry terminology changes all the time. Challenging behaviour was how we coined it for quite some time. More recently, behaviours of concern is the industry accepted language, but for a range of organisations that I work with, we actually just use the term behaviour, so if removed of concern. I personally just think the way that we label things matters greatly. And when we add words like challenging and concerning, it just adds a, a connotation to it that we probably don't need. It's, it's not particularly helpful. So if I had my way, we would just refer to them as behaviours. And sticking with language, for those who aren't familiar with positive behaviour support, could you explain what it entails in a bit more detail? Sure. So positive behaviour support is effectively a framework whereby we understand why somebody is engaging in a particular behaviour and we then help teach them new skills to better meet their needs without having to use the behavior. So let me give you an example. Let's just say you have a terribly sore neck, right? And you go to your GP and they say, oh, that's no good. Sorry to hear that. Here's some endone for you. You go home, you take the endone. Maybe it works temporarily. Maybe you feel okay. But then a month later, the pain starts to come back. The reason for that is that fundamentally, you haven't understood where that pain is coming from. And it's exactly the same in the behavioral world. Until we understand why a behavior is happening, any strategy that we use is quite simply a Band-Aid approach. Sometimes they might land. More often than not, they're not going to land. Even if they do, they're probably not going to have any impact medium to long term. So what we need to remember with positive behavior support is that all behavior is a communication tool. That's why it happens. And our job, or my job in particular, as a senior behavior specialist, is to understand why the behavior is occurring 
and then work towards skill development with the individual so that they don't have to use their behaviour to communicate their needs. So some neurodiverse children will be nonverbal. How do you work out what's behind a behaviour if they can't tell you with their language? Well, language is only one of many ways that we use to communicate. In fact, sometimes the least effective, if I'm honest, in most human beings. (laughs) So there's a range of different ways we can understand messages through alternative means. So, you know, body language and certain responses and things like that. Even if, let's just say, even if somebody did communicate verbally, they had quite extensive expressive language skills. That still doesn't mean that they're going to be able to verbalize what's going on for them. Many fully fledged adults still can't understand how to do that. So with positive behavior support, we have to look at things in a much broader context. It's not as easy as saying, hey, why did you punch the wall? Oh, that's no no good. Let's work through it. Um, we have to look at a whole heap of sort of holistic domains. So we would look at what are the person's communication skills? Are they adequate for their needs? Are they functional? We look at their quality of life because we know that often behaviors of concern happen because somebody's quality of life is quite low. We look at the supports that they have in place. We look at what their current skills are across a range of different domains. You know, how predictable is their life to them? So there's, you know, quite a robust assessment process that we put in place to try and nut down on the why. And some of that involves observations, it involves chatting with parents and stakeholders, it might involve the person themselves if they have the the skills to be able to do that with us. There's a range of different assessment tools that behaviour specialists use and then ultimately that guides us into understanding which of the four functions of behaviour this falls under. Now in an ideal world it would be one of these four but life is never that easy, it usually falls under multiple of these categories. So The four functions of behavior typically are, one is what we call tangible. So my behavior serves as a way to communicate that I want something. I want to eat chocolate before dinner. Um, You're saying no to me. I'm going to have a massive outburst behavior about that because I'm really struggling to cope with what you're telling me. The opposite of wanting something is not wanting something. So that's where the second function comes in, which is escape or what we call protests sometimes. So you might be telling your child to get out of the pool at the end of the swimming lesson and they're struggling with that notion and therefore we see behaviours. Sometimes we have an interaction function. So that means I'm trying to get any interaction from you whatsoever or I'm trying to get a predictable reaction from you. So I know when I do this, you'll do that. And by having that predictable exchange of communication that brings me comfort because I like predictability. And the last function of behavior is um, sensory. So by engaging in this particular behavior, I gain sensory feedback. So if I repetitively hit my head against this brick wall, that actually provides me feedback through my skull. So only when we've worked out what the function is, can we then look at the replacement skills that we're going to teach the person because ultimately the behavior is happening because of an unmet need. We still need to meet that need, but through more appropriate means. It sounds really involved and really, sorry to use the word, but really challenging work. Have you found a way of assessing behaviour 
that is a more straightforward process? Like, is it something that you've developed over time or is it always quite time intensive when you're trying to work out where these behaviours are coming from? Look, we have to remember that I've been in the game a long time now. And so when I'm working with, we call them clients, when I'm working with clients, they're usually particularly complex. So I have to undertake a pretty robust process to get to where I, you know, a, a lot of curiosity to get to where I need to. On a day-to-day basis, if the behaviours aren't particularly complex, you don't need to go through this rigorous process. Sometimes, and, and again, this is just from working in the industry a long time, I can just observe a child or an adolescent or even an adult and work out pretty quickly what's going on. We still carry through the assessment process because my opinion really means nothing. <laughs> we need to um, we, we need to back that with some clinical evidence. We need to collect data. We need to go through, you know, like a, a the proper process. But I can usually work out pretty quick what's going on. But as parents, not every parent is going to need to engage a senior behaviour specialist because they're experiencing behaviours in their household. If you follow the same sort of process in terms of understanding that behaviour is communication, understanding that ultimately your strategies mean nothing until they're adapted specifically to what that communication method is. You're not going to get very far. So parents can certainly put some effective strategies in place if they understand the behaviour better. So is that, I mean, putting it down into very base terms, if my child has a outburst that say they're old, they're not a toddler, they're old enough to have some kind of emotional regulation, but they have an outburst at four o'clock in the afternoon um, and it's because their sister looked at them. <laughs> and you could, as a parent, get, <laughs> not saying this has ever happened in my house. No, you could, not. as a parent, look at that and say, oh my God, he's just, you know, they're just having a fight and that's just bad behavior and just both of you go to your rooms and don't talk. But on a very basic level, if you stop and you think, okay, what has his day been like? Mm -hmm. What's happened before with his sister that might trigger this? Um, Is that what you're saying in terms of looking at where the behaviors come from instead of, you know, we all get, um, I guess we're all in a heightened state when everyone's fighting, (laughs) Uh, but it's like drilling down into why that outburst has happened in the first place. I can tell you that 99% of the time it would have nothing to do with the sister looking at him. Right. That's the, the tip of the ice. <laughs> but that, and it's the same for yeah. us. Like the, I'm not talking about children as if they're these freaks of nature and we can't, we're all the same. Sometimes it just takes something little to tip us over that effectively had nothing to do with how we were feeling. So I use the term iceberg. If you think about an iceberg, we only ever see the tip, but there are often kilometres and kilometres of iceberg beneath the surface. So when we see somebody having an outburst behaviour, we don't know what's going on beneath the surface. It it, it appears that they're angry, but anger might be the furthest thing from how they actually feel. They might be Mm -hmm. feeling embarrassed or overwhelmed or judged or all of these other complex emotions that we all feel. But as human beings, for some reason, it always tends to manifest as anger. And when we respond to somebody who's angry, that's a very different approach to how we respond to somebody who's feeling embarrassed. So sometimes we're actually responding to the wrong emotion, if that makes sense. There is what we call ABC in the industry, and it's usually easy for people to remember. So antecedents, that's the A, 
that refers to what was going on right before the behavior happened. So yes, it might be that my sister looked at me, but what are some other contributing factors? I slept rubbish last night. I was bullied at school today. I've got this test that I'm feeling really anxious about. You know, all of these things that are bubbling beneath the surface. And then the clear trigger is my sister looked at me. So that's all the things that were going on before the behavior occurred. Then we have the behavior itself. So actually, what did it look like? What was objectively Mm. observed? The C is consequence. Now, this is the one that doesn't get enough attention. So people often just look at what was triggering the behavior. Mm. Okay, his sister looked at him. That was what this was all about. Decades and decades of research have taught us that, in fact, equally as important or sometimes more importantly, is how was the behavior responded to? So let me give you an example of how that comes to play. So I recently was working with a 55-year-old lady with a severe intellectual disability, and every time she went to Westfield, she got completely nude. So this, this lady doesn't communicate verbally. He stripped off everything. I started to talk to her team about, you know, what were lines, what was going on, talk to me, paint a picture for me. And it would appear that over time she had tried to show other signs that she was feeling distressed and they had redirected her. And I said, right, so when she gets nude, what do you do? do?" And they said, oh, well, it's a 55-year-old lady with an intellectual disability in the middle of Westfield has no clothes on at all. We just grab a towel, we grab whatever we can, we wrap her up in it, we take her home. And I said, right, and how does she present when she's home? They said, happy as Larry. She sits there, she watched Days of Our Lives, has a cup of tea, life's great. It really didn't take long for me to work out that all she was trying to communicate was that she hated being at Westfield. She was probably overwhelmed. She wanted to be at home on her couch instead. And she had learned that the number one way to do that is to take all of my clothes off and I know that they will take me home. So every behavior that I work with, one of the first questions I ask is, how is this behavior responded to? And I would say 95% of the time, it's very clear to me what is actually reinforcing the behavior. So sometimes we apply what we think is punishment. And a lot of the time that's reinforcing the behavior. So if somebody gets removed from the classroom for being disruptive in the classroom, for instance, it very well might be the case that they were really struggling in maths and hating it and didn't like the person they were sitting next to and they realized all I need to do is throw a glue stick up at the fan and I get time out of the classroom, which is exactly what I needed and wanted, and the teacher has just reinforced the behavior for me. And we're all guilty of it, and unraveling that isn't always super easy, but there are certainly ways that we can do that. But as a parent, I would say pay a great deal of attention to the responses If your responses are working, the behavior is going to be decreasing in both frequency and how severe it is. If your child over time is having less and less outburst behaviors, well, that's great. That means that they're developing new skills and the way that you're responding to them is is as it should be. If, If behavior isn't changing or it's getting worse, there's something not right there with A, both how we're responding to it and B their lack of skill development in terms of learning alternative skills to have their needs met. Erica, thank you so much for your time today. Once you get me started, it's really hard to stop. So I hope, I hope I've been of some value and thank you so much again for having me back. That was Erica Gleason, Behaviour Specialist and All Abilities Consultant. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.